given what we have going tonight. And again, before I get to our passage, you can be turning there. It's uh, John chapter 17. Before we get to reading that, I just uh, one last uh, plug and encouragement for uh, tonight's meeting. The uh, state of the church meeting is a we do talk about finances. We also eat together, and that's a good thing. And we talk about what the Lord is doing in general and what he has done in numerous ways this past year. We do. We talk about missionaries. We talk about uh, various ministries and, and uh, things that have gone on. We talk about um, other family uh, business within uh, the congregation. I don't mean business. I mean news. Like we talk about uh, maybe babies born, and we talk about those we've lost, and we remember this past year. And so it's a family time. So I would encourage you to be there for that. And um, uh, we will eat beforehand and then uh, we will have a financial presentation. Chris does that. He does a fabulous job. Anyone who has been there knows that and uh, it makes it understandable to us. Um, so I would encourage you to join us tonight. And so in light of the fact that we've been uh, talking about uh, leading up to this state of the church I thought it would be fitting for us to close out this uh, brief series on uh, the church in the world is today's message. And we're looking to John chapter 17, and we're going to uh, cover very briefly this, uh, what is called the high priestly prayer. At least that's how it's listed in my Bible and perhaps in yours as well. This comes at the end of the Gospel of John, and or near the end, and he is concluding his ministry with his disciples and his teaching and, and whatnot. And so he, he turns after having taught them for chapters 14 and 15 and 16, preparing them for what it's going to be like after he is gone physically from their presence. Now he turns to the Lord in prayer and uh, prays uh, John chapter 17. So let's read that. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you this morning, pausing from what has gone before and refraining from what might come after, we seek to look to you and to your word. And we ask that even in these next few minutes, as we have your word open before us and we discuss this uh, prayer of uh, our Lord's right before his arrest, right before the passion, as he prays for himself and as he prays for the disciples and as he prays even for us long years afterwards. I pray that you would use your word in our lives. I pray that you would minister to us even now. That you, by your spirit, would do your work. Father, we long to see what you have for us in this passage, and we ask that you would minister to us, even through this prayer of our Lord, for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. So, we have focused, as I said, on uh, the church for this past month, really trying to talk about the church in total, all Christians around the world, and uh, not just our local church, though of course there's, there's application for the body of believers here at Parkside for all of us, but there's also application for the church more broadly, and so uh, we looked at the fact starting at the beginning of the year when Stephen preached from Matthew chapter 16, and we saw that that Jesus said he will build his church. And we can have confidence because Jesus said he will do that. And he keeps his word. And he has the power to keep his word. He has the power to accomplish <clears throat> the building of his church. And so we focused on that. And then we turned and we looked at the fact that the church is unified. It is, it is unified. We are saved together. We have called uh, been called into one body, and so there's a great unity within the body, even though uh, there might be distinction in some ways, yet there is great unity. We looked also 
uh, from Acts chapter 10 at the fact that the church is universal, that the church spreads around the world and really throughout uh, time from, from Jesus' prayer right here until uh, now and into the future that, that there's one universal church and, and, uh, and God is doing a, a massive thing and he's working in different ways in different parts of the world yet it is uh, Jesus building his church in a universal fashion. And then last week we turned and looked at Ephesians chapter 5 and we saw the picture there of the bride, the, the church is like Jesus' bride. And we saw how there's a great investment. We saw how there's a great um, care for and dedication to and, and, uh, and, and tender mercy towards his bride. And, and that's us. And we look at each other and we look at ourselves and we think, how can that be? And yet, that's exactly what Paul says is going on, that, that uh, the church is the bride of Christ. And, and so he is, he is working to nurture her. He is working to take care of her, to prepare her for that great day when he will finally and ultimately present her to himself and, and his work will be completed and she will be, she will be all done up and she will be holy and beautiful and without blemish and without spot and, and, and beautiful to him. And that's us. And so uh, we saw that we are, as the church, the bride of Christ. And I thought it would be fitting for us to turn to these words of Jesus in this prayer uh, towards the end of the Gospel of John when he's ministered to his disciples for so long and he's, he's preparing them for his physical absence and what's going to come and he's been talking to them and he prays. And I thought it would be a, a, a powerful thing for us to look at in the conclusion of our month focusing on the church to see exactly how Jesus prays. What are the things that he prays for? And, and just to you know, give you a, a little advance notice, it's about the church in the world and the interaction between the church and the world. And uh, that's, a, that's a big um, topic of what's going on here in this passage and so uh, we want to uh, just work our way briefly through this uh, section. We could spend a lot more time, but I want to hit some high points about uh, Jesus' prayer here and what's really going on. And first of all, I want to notice in uh, the first few verses that he's praying for himself. That Jesus starts off praying for himself. And it's interesting what he prays for himself. He prays that the Father would glorify him. And so perhaps if we were just coming to this text and we were thinking about lowly Jesus, meek and mild, and, and we think about the fact that he opens up his prayer by asking the Father to glorify him, to glorify the Son. He's praying for himself. And we see this uh, kind of throughout these first five verses here. He is asking that the Father glorify him. He says, he says there in verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify the Son. Glorify the Son. And he says again in, in verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence. So he's asking the Father to glorify himself. And, and that's, that's very important for us. This, of course, isn't Jesus being selfish. Jesus has never been selfish. He's never been uh, self-centered like we can be, where you don't really matter to me because I'm more important in my own mind and things like that. That's, that's not Jesus, of course. We know that. But we need to understand from the very beginning, from Jesus' ministry as he comes into this world is for the purpose of redeeming sinners. It's for the purpose of obeying God. It's for the purpose of uh, keeping the law. It's for the purpose of going to the cross. 
All of those things are included in that. That's the mission that the Father has given him. But in the completion of, in the carrying out that mission, Jesus himself is glorified greatly. He's the one who is our Savior. He is the one who has done that redeeming work. And so when he prays here that the Father would glorify him, he's praying for the completion of all of that redemptive work that is wrapped up in Jesus and what Jesus does. And he's saying, Father, the, the time has come. Let's wrap this whole thing up. Let's conclude this whole thing where the Son is going to be glorified. And of course, we know enough about the ministry of Jesus to, to look and, and look ahead just a couple of chapters from where we are in John and realize that the glorification happens by means of the cross. That the cross itself, which is utterly humiliating, which is his being punished in the place of sinners. That's the means by which Jesus will be glorified. That's the means by which Jesus himself will be lifted up, literally on a cross, but lifted up in praise for all eternity on the mouths of, of the redeemed. So he prays from the very beginning, Father, glorify your Son. And he says there in verse 5, glorify your Son uh, in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So a reference here, obviously, to Jesus' pre-existence, that he is the eternal uh, Son of God. And he's saying, let's wrap all of this up and restore me to that place. Theologians will sometimes refer to Jesus' time on earth as his, his hum humiliation. And that makes sense. I mean, he had to, you know, the, the creator of all things, being confined to a body, you know, walking around. When he had to get from here to there, he had to walk. <laughs> and he had to endure all that he had to endure. It's a time of humiliation. And, of course, the climax of that humiliation is the cross itself. But he prays here, Father, even though it involves all of that humiliation, even though it's going to involve my death on the cross, yet glorify your son. And so he prays from the very beginning that God would glorify him. And there's a verse in there that I, I think we need to um, stop and pay attention to for a second. That's verse 3. What is eternal life? He says in verse 3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Perhaps that's not the definition that immediately comes to our minds when we think about eternal life. Even if we just break down the words, you know, it's just two words there, life. We know what that is. That means the opposite of dying, right? We get to go on. We get to exist. We get to continue. And eternal life gives the idea of an unending life, life that keeps going so that we don't face an ultimate death, though we as Christians realize we will die in this body, yet we will be raised and there will be no Second death for the Christian. But there's more than that. And Jesus is driving it more than just the idea of us having to, having the opportunity or uh, living forever without dying. He wants to talk about the relational aspect of it. This is eternal life, he says in verse 3. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's relationship with the Father through the Son. That is eternal life. 
Sometimes we think about heaven, and particularly if you're talking to a, perhaps a newer Christian or, or, or maybe, maybe uh, there's someone who hasn't thought about it a whole lot, and they think about heaven, and you ask them what it's going to be like, and they don't, they don't really know. They know it's going to be great because it's heaven. But why is it great? What's so wonderful about it? Well, I'll never die. There'll be no more tears. Well, yes, yes. Streets of gold. Okay. What else? What is so great about heaven? The fact that you are in the presence of God Himself. That's what's so great about heaven. That is what is so wonderful about life eternal. Is not just that our heart will never stop again. Not just that our body will never fall to the ground in death again like it uh, will eventually do on, on this earth. But that we get to be in the very presence of God. At peace with Him. For eternity. And I think if we pause here for a second, this isn't the notes, I'll probably get myself in trouble. But sometimes we may look at, you know, our devotions, right? It's January, everyone's still reading their Bible, and you know, you might even be a couple days behind now, so you're trying to read more to catch up, and you're thinking, I want to read through the Bible this year, or, or whatever. Maybe that's just me, I don't know. Why do we do those devotions? It's not like, you know, reps in the gym that if you do it, you know, the more you do it, the stronger you get and there's a one-to-one correspondence. That's not why we do it. We open God's Word, we pray, we read, we meditate because there we meet God. And we are developing a taste for being in His presence. One of the reasons an unbeliever remains an unbeliever is because they don't want His presence. And one of the things we are growing in as Christians is desiring His presence all the more. We want to be with Him. We want to to meet Him in His Word. We want to meet Him in prayer. We want to be with Him more and more. And so those times of uh, reading God's Word and praying, the times we're joined together in in corporate worship like this, we are developing a taste more and more to be in God's presence. And so eternal life is not just your heart beating forever and never stopping. Your body always working for, for all eternity. Those things are true, and the point is that we are in God's presence. And so that is what eternal life is. I think it's interesting And important for us to note here that the foundation, the first goal of the Lord's prayer here is for His own glory in this sense. He's not wanting to be lifted up above uh, His competitor or something. That's not really the main thrust. It's more He has completed the work that God has given Him to do. And that work involves the redemption of you and me. And having completed that, He is glorified with the glory that He had before the world was created. And so, I think that's instructive for us in our own prayer. Why, why do we pray for the things that we pray for? Ultimately, it needs to be rooted in and directed towards this same thing, the glory of Jesus. That's why we pray. And that's the purpose of our prayer. That's the direction of our prayer, is that He would be glorified. And so, if, if I'm praying for something, I, I can... You know, someone to get better or something like that. I love that person. I want that person to 
to get better, not have to endure suffering and not have their body break down and, and these sorts of things. I pray for that. But all the while, I have in my mind that it's possible that the Lord may not take that away. And instead, they may die of that or suffer a long time if He determines that is what is glorifying to Him. To bless His saint in the midst of suffering is glorifying to Him as well. And so while I'm praying for that person's healing, I'm also recognizing that the glory of the Lord is greater even than that person's healing. And so I will pray for both, and I will pray for that healing that direction so that Jesus would be glorified. And all the while I recognize that He may be glorified in not removing that illness. He has been glorified in such millions of times. And He may so again. And so I am seeking, I am looking ultimately, ultimately for His glory. And so our prayers need to be rooted in that and headed that direction. We're going to see that that is the case with Jesus' own prayer. So Jesus prays for Himself. And secondly, we move on, verses 6 through 19. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for his disciples. And I'm not going to work through this in detail, but I do want to notice, uh, first of all, he prays, Lord, keep them. Father, keep them. Protect them. Guard them. Look after them. Keep them. He says in verse 11, particularly, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. The the Lord has invested His name in His people. His reputation is at stake. He He has identified us with Himself. And so, His name has to do with His entire reputation. Has to do with who He is that He has identified with us. That's one of the amazing things about uh, about getting married is this this person, my spouse, wanted to be identified with me forever. That's wonderful, and that is humbling. Well, that's that's you know my peer, that's my bride. She's like me, right? She's a sinner like me. She's you know she's like me, and. Creator God has drawn you into a relationship with Himself such that His name is connected with us. His reputation is connected with us. And it's humbling that my wife would want to marry me. It's humbling that my wife would want to be identified with me. And it is incredibly humbling that my Creator would want to be identified with me. And He does. And Jesus prays, Father, keep them in Your name. Guard them. Protect them. Your name is upon them. Keep them directed towards Your name. Cause them to remember Your name. Cause them to live for Your name. Keep them in Your name. And in verse 15 particularly, keep them from the evil one. Because He's praying for the church as he is about to leave and not be in their physical presence anymore. And it must have been something to travel with Jesus and run across some high Pharisee or, or some lawyer that's, you know, four times smarter than everybody else and, you know, or, or, or whatever who wants to argue with Jesus. I would love to sit back and just, you know, watch, watch what Jesus is going to do, right? Watch what Jesus is going to say to this guy. I, I don't know how to answer this guy. And Jesus knows how. Right, So Jesus was there guarding them and protecting them and, and keeping them, His disciples, 
from the evil one or from evil arguments or it would have been amazing to see Jesus do that. I would love to have been able to do that. But now Jesus is going away. And, you know, I, I don't know if there was a debate. It's nowhere in the text. I, you know, they debated about all kinds of other things. They probably debated about this, too. Okay, who's going to answer, you know, when the Pharisees come next time? Is it going to be you, John? You know, or Peter, Peter, you like to talk. <laughs> You're always out front. Why don't you answer them, right? You know, I kind of wonder if that's how they did that. And that's, that's just me speculating. But here, Jesus is going away and he prays to the Father. Father, protect them from the evil one. I'm not going to be here physically to do it anymore. So he asked the Father to do so. And so, praise God, he prayed for uh, God's protection of the disciples. So he prays, first of all, for his disciples. Again, we're going to get to his prayer for the future church in just a bit. But right now he's praying for his disciples. And there are points of application here for us. But first of all, he prays that, that God would protect them and keep them. And secondly, he prays that God would sanctify them. God would sanctify them. Verse 17, of course, is our key verse here. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He, he knows his disciples. He knows them very well. He knows uh, the challenges they're going to face when he departs. He knows the fear that they're, that they're going to come up against. He knows the temptations that are going to be there. He knows what is ahead of them. And so he prays that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. And it's fascinating that he says, your word is truth. In this connection, what he means is, it's the word of God that sanctifies the people of God. I talked earlier about why we read the Bible, why we open it up and, and regularly read it on our own, and why we pray, and why we preach the word here, and we teach it in Sunday school and in another context. Why do we do that? Well, it's developing our taste for God our taste for His presence, our taste for that relationship, another way of putting that is, it sanctifies us. The Bible sanctifies us. As we have presented before us what God is really like, and then what we're like. And what Jesus has done. It draws us in our hearts towards Him. It draws us in our minds towards Him. And it draws us in our actions towards Him. The Word is sanctifying. And so he prays that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. God's Word sets believers apart. God's Word shapes them. And they are sent into the world testifying to the, the truth and the importance of God's Word to a dying world around them. That The Word of God is central to everything that these disciples are to do. The Word of God is central to everything that the church is supposed to do. We are called out. We are set apart as believers by the Word of God. We are shaped by the Word of God. And we are sent with the Word of God into this world to testify about what Christ has done. So he prays not only that God would keep and protect his people, but he prays also that God would sanctify them with His Word. And so we open the Bible and we read it together. We open the Bible and we preach it. And we open the Bible and we study it together and we seek to memorize it together. And we have times outside of our corporate times where we are talking about His Word together. And we go home and we open His Word and we read it. 
because we long for God's shaping work in our lives by means of His Word. A couple of points of application. We should regularly be subjecting ourselves to God's Word. I couldn't find a better word than subjecting that kind of... But we, we need to have it open. We need to be exposed to it. Having it taught to us, reading it, studying, discussing it with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be regularly exposed to God's Word. Second of all, we need to be aware of the attacks from the world. Jesus was aware, and so he knew to pray for his disciples. And of course, we know that the majority of them were put to death you know, eventually for their faith. And they suffered uh, terribly because of their faith. We have been left in this world, left behind, as it were, as Jesus has gone away physically, yet here we are. The world hates us because we are not of the world. And we've been sent into the world to minister to this world, minister these truths that the world hates. And so we require the working of God to keep us from the evil one as we go and take that word. And so we need to realize about ourselves that there is a certain kind of danger from the world. The good news is Jesus prays to the Father that we would be protected in that context. We need to realize our need for his protection in that context. We need to realize that the world will lie to us, and so we need to be reminded of the truth of his word. We need to realize that the world will will try to harm us. And so we need the very protection of God as we do so. Aren't we glad that Jesus prayed for the church? And this wasn't just his disciples. It's directly about his disciples, but it's true nowadays also. Nothing really has changed. Another point of application, let us take comfort in the fact that our Lord asked the Father to keep us safely in the Father's arms and protected from the evil one. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus was concerned enough about our situation, where we've been left. He was concerned enough, he was aware enough of the attacks of the world and our vulnerability unless God acts. And so he asked God to act, and he will. And he will, and so you and I are protected and In this, we take great comfort. And before we move on to the next section, there's a point of doctrine here that we really need to point out in verse 19. Verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus consecrated himself. His life of obedience to God, his his perfect obedience to the law, was for us. And the death that he's about to die, by which he's going to be glorified, was for us. Because you and I have not obeyed. We have not kept God's law. And we have a track record of however long that we've been alive where we've not kept his law perfectly. And that's a strike against us. But Jesus kept the law. Jesus obeyed the law. He was always obedient And he's accumulating that righteousness, as it were. He's obeying so that it can be given to us. So that our record reflects his obedience. And our record reflects the payment for our sin, which he paid on the cross. And so we read here that Jesus himself consecrates himself 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Christian, we stand before God justified. Sanctified is the term he's using here. Right before God in right relationship with him because of what Christ has done. And we can't miss that. It's it's not only Jesus dying, though that is an enormous part of it. But it's also his obedience to the law. It's credited to us. So that you and I can can stand before God and He examines our record and, and we're, we don't have to be afraid. We have confidence because there is, there is obedience. The obedience of Christ credited to our account. And so, I didn't want to miss that point of doctrine as we went by there. And there, there are other points of doctrine that I uh, skipped over for the sake of time. I'm sure you will appreciate that. I had a, a thought of dividing this into several weeks and making it a series and I thought, you know what? Maybe some other time. Let's, let's conclude in the next few minutes. As Jesus turns and prays for us. We've talked about how he prayed for his disciples and there's application to us. He prayed for his disciples who were standing around him. They had their, you know, they were praying along with him and he was praying for them and we can see how that relates to us. But here he turns and, and prays specifically for us. For those who will believe through the word of these who are standing around him. And he prays for a few things. He says, first of all, he prays for our unity. Let's read verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So he prays, first of all, for our unity. Specifically, he prays that we would be perfectly one. That we would be perfectly one. One. That's amazing. And we've talked about the unity of the church. We, we spent time in Ephesians talking about the unity of the church. And, and here he's, he goes on to explain what he means by that unity. It's not that we are clones of one another. It's not that there can be no, no distinction. But there is an identification. That we are in the body of Christ. We have this gospel, this saving work of God on our behalf that has been accomplished for us, and by that, we are one. And he even goes on and talks about uh, how it, it's, he uses the analogy of his relationship between him, the Son, and the Father. Well, is the Son the Father? No. The Son is not the Father. If they are both God, God is the Father, or the, the Father is God, the Son is God, and yet we can distinguish between the Father and the Son. Here you've got the Son praying to the Father. So, in some ways, you can make a distinction, and yet they are one. The Father sent the Son with a plan of what to do, with a list of what He was to accomplish, and Jesus is saying in this prayer, I've done all of that. So receive me back, give me that glory that I had at the beginning, restore Restore me to that position. Give me the glory that I had before the world was created. 
no longer in a place of humiliation, but in a place of glorification. And so there's a, there's a, a unity between Father and Son. And likewise, there is to be a unity between us. And that unity between us exists because of our unity with the Son. We have been identified with Him. We are in Him. And thus there is a unity that we have by virtue of being Christians. And as we saw from Ephesians chapter 4, our task is not to create or develop somehow that unity. It is to be eager to maintain that unity. So when I look at you, Christian, I see someone who is in Christ, who is my brother or my sister in Christ, and we are one. And I'm eager to maintain that unity with you. Seek to maintain that. Seek to, to keep it. There can be distinction between you and me. There is distinction between the Son and the Father. And yet we are unified because we are in Christ. And so Jesus prays here for the unity of the church, that, that we would be unified in that way, that we would be identified with and identified by Jesus, our Savior. And so we have this unity. So the point of application is pretty obvious here. We need to be eager to maintain that unity which has been given to us. And so we treat one another with that kind of love. We treat one another with that kind of respect and that kind of dignity. We, we acknowledge one another as being those who are in the body of Christ. And we are eager to maintain that. We want to keep it. We're not seeking to drive wedges. We're not seeking to... to uh, cause division where there is unity in Christ. So let us pray for one another. And let us bear with one another. And let us forgive the sins of one another, even when they have sinned against us. Let us love one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has formed us, after all, into the body of Christ. And so let's be eager to maintain that unity. So Jesus prays for our unity. Secondly, he prays for us to see his glory. Look at the last two verses there. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He prays that we would see his glory. It is good for us as Christians to see his glory, to recognize Jesus for what he really is, for who he really is. I think sometimes we... We, we blow past the glory of Christ, the, blow past the glory of God. And in part, I get it because it's, it could be difficult to understand, perhaps. But we dare not blow past it. Because His glory is good for us to see. He is the one who has created us. He is the one who has redeemed us. And His redemption of us results in even greater glory to Himself. And we are those who get to look at that. We get to see what He is really like. And so, He prays that we would get to see His glory. And so, the application here, don't think lightly of the glory of the Lord. 
Jesus prays here that we will be with Him in glory and able to behold the wonders of all that He's done. Folks, we have such a small picture of what He's done. We think about the span of our lives and we think about what we read about in the Bible and we, and we, and we have great pictures and glorious, wonderful pictures of what He's done. But we see just a small piece of what He's done to redeem sinners like you and me. And in glory, we'll get to stand back and see the, the entirety of the picture. Nothing will be veiled. Nothing will be hidden in the, the recesses of history that we, that we didn't have you know, time to go read about or maybe was never written about or whatever. We'll see the whole thing played before us. And then we will be amazed. We will be in wonder about what our Lord is like. You think about the disciples and uh, how they saw Jesus and they walked with Him and they were amazed and they were continually amazed about the things He said and the things that He did. But those disciples who were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were astounded just to see a brief revelation, a momentary glimpse of what Jesus is really like. And so let's hold that before us. And I, we dare not miss this last point. He prays these things. He prays for this, this unity for us, for us to be one in order for the world to know Him. In order for the world to hear about Him. To be presented with the Gospel. To have this picture of who He is and what He's done. We see in the second part of verse 21, He prays for us that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us. Why? For what purpose? So that the world may believe that You've sent Me. And the same thing in, in the second half of 23, He prays, that we might become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's praying for the church. He's praying for us. I mean, he starts by praying for himself and he prays for the disciples and then he moves and he prays for the future church. And he wants us to be aware that the blessings that we have in Christ, this salvation that we have, doesn't just stop here. It's not as if God just rescues us from our destiny of hell and places us in a trophy case and then goes and rescues somebody else and places someone else in a trophy case. Now, he does that. He rescues people from hell and they are trophies and he puts them to work. He uses them to show off his saving work for the purpose of drawing others in. So the gospel will go to new people. And he talks about the great unity that we have with one another and that when we love one another, the world sees that we are Jesus' disciples. When we are unified together with one another, there's something that, that causes that to, to shine brightly to the world around us. And they see that we are his disciples. And that is part of the means that God uses to draw people to himself is his work within the body of Christ. And so... For me, this, this retunes my understanding of the church and part of what the church is about, part of what is accomplished in the church, part of what is accomplished in our unity with one another, our relationship with one another. And that is that it draws sinners to Christ. It is like advertising. It's Him 
showing his redemptive work. When we who are so different from one another, with such different backgrounds, when we are unified, when we are drawn together, that demonstrates the redemptive work of Christ to the world around us. John sums it up very well in probably the most famous verse of all. What is the world to know? What is demonstrated? What's put on display by, by the church? Well, of course, it's John 3.16. What the world is to know is that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the message that is made known by our unity with one another. So we've done a very uh, quick tour through John chapter 17. And there are some key things that we need to talk about or think about as we wrap this up. Jesus opens His great prayer by praying that the Father would glorify the Son. The Father has given the Son work to do, to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given Him, to give them the Father's very words and to keep them. And Jesus has kept His end of the bargain. He's near the end of His course. He's fulfilled His mission or is on the verge of doing so. Jesus has invested and identified Himself as fully as possible with His people. And so His reputation, His name, indeed the Father's name, is on the line. And so He prays for His people. He prays that the Father would keep and protect them in His name. That He would sanctify them in the truth, which is His Word. And He prays even for us who come thousands of years later and believe in Jesus because of the words of His disciples. He prays for our unity, that we would be one with each other, joined in relationship to the triune God. He prays for these things because they are good in themselves and good for us, and also because they are the means by which the world sees and hears that God saves sinners through the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that eternal life isn't just unending uh, life with no death. It's, it's unending, uh, but it's a life of peaceful and glorious relationship with God. And that's the point. And just as Jesus began His prayer, so He ends it with His own glory. Only now His prayer is that we would get to see His glory and be with Him to enjoy that glory forever. And this is what the church has to look forward to. This is what we, the body of Christ, have to look forward to. This is what you and I, Christian, have to look forward to. Let's pray. Father,